Well, last week we looked at the first verses here of chapter 14 and this amazing passage in which you have Philip say, show us the Father. And then we come to understand that Christ is himself the theophany of God. Of all the theophanies in Scripture, the consummate theophany is God himself. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The next thing he said was this. He said, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Now, what's interesting there is that you have two things we we noted but did not spend much time on, and that is Jesus talking about words and works. And these words and works, both uh, Jesus traces to the Father, saying that the Father is the sole sufficient explanation for both the words and the works. The, the words that he speaks are true because they are the words that he speaks on behalf of the Father. Now keep that in mind because even as we went through verse 14 of chapter 14 when we were last together, now we turn to verse 15. And even as the, the, the truth that Christ is the theophany of God leapt out at us from the text last time, in a way, that many evangelicals miss, there's something equally explosive in the passage that begins with verse 15. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and will be in you. Now, just a few words there. And quite naturally, I think most Christians thinking of this passage would say, well, here's the promise of the Holy Spirit. That, that, that's the, that's the, the big point of this passage. It is the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Holy Spirit. As we shall see, verb tense here becomes very important, but we're not there yet. There's something else here, and it's one of those giant truths, a shocking truth, actually, that we tend to rush over as we're reading the Bible. This is about the Holy Spirit, so let's think about the Holy Spirit. Well, wait a minute, let's not think about the Holy Spirit yet. Verse 15 begins, if you love me. That's not just a Hallmark greeting card. This is Jesus in this farewell discourse preparing his disciples for when he is not going to be with him, and the test will be not only do you believe in me, but do you love me? That phrase, if you love me, is absolutely amazing. Linguists looking at the history of human languages will point out that languages reach a certain point of complexity when you can add a conditional. And just think about this. Uh, got a beautiful preschooler over here, uh, toddler. The acquisition of conditional in language is a very big thing. Okay, you go from 
this is a cookie, no conditional there, to if you eat all of your eggs, you may have a cookie. Okay, you understand what happened in the language there? This is, the first is just sight, simple, equivalence, correspondence. The second is imaginative. It requires an imagination about what might happen, but what might not happen. If you love me. Now, clearly, the context here is Jesus saying that the demonstration of their love, because they're not going to say they don't love him. They've already said that they love him, and they're about to say that in even more intensive ways, certain of the disciples representing all of us. Of course, the love of Christ is the animating reality of the Christian life. But Jesus is going to say, well, if you love me, then you're mine. And that love will be expressed, of course, in chapters to follow, even in the next chapter. And then, of course, by the time you get to the high priestly prayer in John 17, he speaks of his love for us, and the Father's love for us through him, and the love of the Father for the Son, and the Son for the Father. This is about his disciples. If you love me, well, well then what? Jesus, what are you going to say? If you love me, then then What? He says, then you will keep my commandments. Okay, we can go on from there. No, we can't. Commandments? Are we 14 chapters into the Gospel of John when we find out that Jesus is a lawgiver? Seriously? How many Christians would answer the question correctly if asked, was, is Jesus about law or grace? Gospel or law? And they say, gospel, gospel. Jesus is all about gospel. Moses is about law. But here Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Again, Explosion. Incredible explosion. Now, wait just a minute. Wait just a minute. If, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Where, where are the Ten Commandments of Jesus? Where, where, where are they? We have Deuteronomy 20, excuse me, Exodus 20, for the uh, giving of the Ten Commandments through Moses, and they are commandments, and we know them now. And then... Here Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep the commandments of Moses. No, that's not what he says. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now, wherever you find gospel Christianity, you will find a very clear distinction between law and grace. A contrast, a distinction. But you will not find in any gospel Christianity the elimination of the law, but rather its fulfillment in Christ. Those are two fundamentally different moves, the first one illegitimate, the second gospel. Christ does not repudiate the law. Christ does not reject the law. 
Christ does not declare the law to be old and past and done. He fulfills the law. In the Sermon on the Mount, the Gospel of Matthew, he says, not one jot, not one tittle of this law shall pass until all has been fulfilled. And a, and a part of Christ's atonement is the fact that by his passive and active obedience, he fulfilled the law perfectly, doing for us what we could not do. The law's righteous demands met in one. Christ. Some years ago, following in the line of others, and especially you could think of some in the early centuries of the church, you can think of some in the century after the Reformation, and this is, I often remind people that the Reformation drew necessarily the great distinction between grace and law, but uh, sometimes in ways that were unsustainable such as Martin Luther, who spoke of the law disparagingly in his celebration of grace, to the extent, he said, it would be wrong for the Christian to teach the law. What theological revolution changed Luther's mind? A four-year-old son. It turns out, you've got to teach children the law. Teaching them the gospel before the law turns them into sociopaths. They must be taught the law before the gospel. And, and we all need the law. Several years ago, John Piper actually wrote a book, and it was a pretty big book. It was a bigger book than he intended to write, on the law of Christ. Now, now technically, when someone comes up and says, what's the law of Christ? Well, the first thing we think of is the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus speaks about the first and the greatest commandment, and the second likened to it. The first commandment, going back to Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, you shall love the Lord with all your heart and soul, and Jesus says, mind. The second is likened to it, going back to Leviticus 19, you shall love your neighbor uh, as yourself. On these two commandments, all the law and the prophets hang. And you notice Jesus didn't say, oh, but those are old, those are, you know, the, the time-stamped Sell by date, gone. No. He says, this is how my people are going to live, that those are the first greatest commandments. Everything else hangs. Now, if everything else hangs, that means they haven't exactly gone away. Not in terms of binding obligation, not in terms of moral guidance and responsibility and, and obedience. Piper said, as a, an experiment in writing this book, What God Demands of the World, he said, let's just imagine that we don't know the Old Testament law. So we, we, we don't have it. We don't even know what the Apostle Paul and others in the New Testament are speaking about in contrast. Let's just say all we have is the New Testament. Where is the law? How many laws and commandments are there? Well, as Piper discovered, it's, it's difficult to put a number on them, so he summarized them into 50. 50 commands of Christ. And, and you think about it, remember a command is a moral order. It's an imperative like Jesus saying, love one another. Pray without ceasing. In all things, you know, you just, you just go look at what Jesus said. There, there are a lot of commands that Jesus gave. In the Sermon on the Mount, yes. In the Sermon on the Mount, he intensified uh, the, the law, the Old Testament law, to the extent he said it's not enough that you do not commit adultery. Don't commit adultery. But you actually are sinning if you desire to commit adultery, give yourself to that temptation, even to envisioning that temptation, to lust. So Jesus intensified Old Testament commands, 
Jesus gave new commands that were not found in the Old Testament. And again, Piper, and, and of course, you, you have the Great Commission, which is again, it's a commandment. This is imperative language. And let's just remind ourselves, and uh, here I want to just commend to you if you want to consideration of all those different commands that you'll find just in the New Testament and basically just from Christ, just look to Piper's book, What God Demands of the World. It's very interesting. But I want to come back to the word commandment for a moment. It's, uh, it's right here because Jesus spoke the word himself. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, he says here, um, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to my Father. You'll remember the last words we looked at last week. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Have you thought about the commandments in this way, uh, both in the Old Testament and in the New? And it's explicit in the Old Testament that Israel thought this way and was taught to think this way because the commandments of God given at Sinai were so different than the laws or principles of any other nation. One of my favorite passages in the entire Old Testament is Deuteronomy 4, where Moses, preaching to the people of Israel, says, has any other people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire and survived? It's an amazing passage, you know, right there with the law. That's where Israel is being reminded of their experience at Horeb or Sinai of receiving the law. And uh, you remember that the, the mountain shook and was... was covered with fire and smoke over the mountain, and the voice of God was heard like mighty thunder. And, and that passage, I can still remember where I read it as a teenager, and I've enjoyed preaching it since. It's, it, it struck me because the, the, the verse is dramatic enough it, until you get to the last words and you realize, wow, there's more here than I thought. Has any other people Heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire. That's amazing enough. But those next words, and survived. That caught my attention. There are people who are going to hear the word of God, the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire. Read the book of Revelation. But they're not going to survive. But Israel, by grace, survived. And, uh, and then that entire passage of Deuteronomy 4, where Again, Moses' preaching says, has, has any other people received laws like this, laws so just and perfect, commandments given to us that are given to no one else? It's a part of God's covenant with Israel that God gave Israel a law. He loved Israel. He chose Israel. He made Israel. He made covenant with Israel, and then he gives Israel the commandments. He doesn't give anyone else the commandments. But here's something else about commandments. Let's just say that you're in Greece or Rome or Obviously, we're anachronistic in the Old Testament with Rome, but just follow through your civilizational imagination and just imagine that you're under any, you're in Egypt, you're in any other system of law. What is a distinction between a law and a commandment? You may never have had to think about this before. Okay? The difference is that a commandment is personally given. It is the the verbal, the, the, the written form 
of a command of someone with commanding authority. This is a commandment. Now, just compare that with, uh, you know, the 147 New Age principles of life. You know, I don't know there are 147. They're probably just a one with 146 accumulations. But nonetheless, let's just say, the, the, this, these are not principles. He didn't say, if you love me, you will keep my principles. He didn't say, if you love me, you will observe this, the statutes. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Or in this case, he said, in the simplest terms possible, you will, not might, but you will keep my commandments. And keeping means obedience, and it's a, it's a very good verb unto itself, uh, keeping, keeping ourselves to Christ as Christ keeps us unto himself, and we keep his commandments. We we obey Him. This, this idea that Christ has a law, that Christ has commandments, you know, just, just imagine the frustration. Think about this. Let's just say you sit down with a Christian and you say, well, uh, what are the commandments of Christ? Well, what are the commandments of God? What, what are the commandments that are generally sometimes referred to as the law of Moses. How many of them are there? If you take the Torah, how many? How many are there? Ten. Okay, ten. Let's just say ten. Everybody knows the Ten Commandments. But how many commandments do the Jewish people count in the five books of the Pentateuch, the Torah? Your final exam, you need to know this number, you should know this number. 613, okay? 613 commandments, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They're the 10 that are given in the 10 commandments, and then there are many other commands that are given. The book of Leviticus alone has, you know, the, this massive number of commands that are given. And so if, if, if you're a rabbi, your job is to know how many commandments there are. You've got, to, you've got to give attention to the law. You've got to know what every one of them is. You have to be able to articulate it, list it, teach it, measure your life by it. Okay, so let me ask you this. If you're going to divide 613 commandments, how are you going to divide them? Let's say there are two, two main categories. What would the two main categories of the, commands, the commandments in the Old Testament be? Well, you might say the easiest way to think of it is positive and negative, or you would say uh, they are the commandments of obligation and the commandments of prohibition. How's that a way of putting it? So uh, it, it's the, you do this, you don't do that. Interestingly, this tells us also something about fallen human nature. Of the commands of obligation, there are 248. And this is by the rabbinical count, standard rabbinical count, Talmudic count. 613 commands, 248 are commands of obligation, 365 are commands of prohibition. Now again, does that not sound about right if you're the parent of a preschooler? You actually have to have more thou shalt nots than thou shalts. I, uh, I find great delight Mary and I do together, obviously being a grandparent, but before that, watching the children, our own, and then the children of our friends, and I 
tell people, look, you know, I, we, we knew one little boy very well who actually had to be told, don't stick the screwdriver into the electrical outlet. Don't stick the screwdriver into the electrical outlet. Don't do it. He had to be told in just that way. This was not our son. This was a friend's son. I had the joy in later years of appointing him a dean at Southern Seminary. He's a member of this church. And he is because he did not stick the screwdriver into the outlet or low. He wouldn't know Dean B. But you just look at that. That's just a picture of humanity. It's actually just a beautiful graphic picture of humanity, and he wouldn't have minded me telling that story. I wouldn't have told it. Uh, and we all have our own absolute necessity of the commands that say, do not stick the screwdriver into the electrical outlet. We have to have negative commands, because in a fallen world, there are actually more emphatic things we must not do. And this is even in the, in the Ten Commandments. Just look, look at... Look at uh, Look at the, you shall and you shall, you shall have no other gods before me. It's just, you shall not commit adultery. It's it's, it's a lesson for us. So, 613 commands, 248 commands of obligation, 365 of prohibition. What about Christ? Again, as I mentioned, Piper just trying to go through, because we don't have a table of the law. We don't have two tablets of stone. We have a a living Messiah, Savior, with His disciples, and it's in the continual teaching of, that you will find in the four Gospels. But of course, we're also obligated to the commands of Christ that are given to us elsewhere in the New Testament, even through apostolic commands that are still a part of the law of Christ uh, because they are coming to us from those who are speaking on behalf of Christ. But the point is that in the New Testament, the law of Christ is not... We, we don't think of it. That's the whole point of this discussion this morning. We don't think of it in the same way we think of the law of Moses. Well, for one thing, because it's a continuation of the law of Moses. Nine of the Ten Commandments are emphatically repeated and often amplified in the New Testament. The only commandment in the Old Testament, in the Ten Commandments, that is not repeated in its rather classic form for Christians, is the Sabbath command. And I think there's a very clear explanation for that. Jesus gives the explanation in passages such as in Matthew, where he says the Sabbath was made for man, man was not made for the Sabbath. And in Hebrews chapter 4, we find out Christ is our Sabbath. But it's not because the Sabbath commandment was nullified, but it is because Christ fulfilled the Sabbath, and He thus becomes our Sabbath. It becomes a picture of actually our justification. We rest in Christ. A part of what it means to be justified by faith, a part of what it means to recognize faith and to define it is that we rest in Him. Now, that does not mean that there is no continuing presence of that command because it's now translated into a New Testament camp command, also, by the way, you know, found in a passage such as Hebrews, we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. That's why we're here. But Christians began to meet on the first day of the week in commemoration of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, 
And uh, even within the New Testament, we have the institution of the Lord's Day. But it's, it's not a commandment that is so much negative about what it is we ought not to do. It is not so much one of the commands of, uh, of prohibition as it is one of the commands of obligation. We're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We're to make the priority of the day the worship of the one true and living God as Christ's church gathers. So there is a law of Christ, there are commandments. And then remember the Great Commission. Go into all the world and make disciples. And then, of course, it concludes teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. So it's actually not only teaching the commandments, but teaching, teaching them to observe all the commandments. And so that's the very essence of the Great Commission. We tend to think of it as go into all the nations and make converts, and yes, that's there. But it's not just making converts, it's making disciples, and the disciples are those who obey His commandments, teaching them to obey all I have commanded you. So right here in John chapter 14, verse 15, there's this amazing beginning, if you love me, and then the statement, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, in this particular passage, there just isn't a lot of elucidation. There's not a lot of expansion. And what does that tell us? It tells us that it was not necessary in this moment for Jesus to explain what he meant. His disciples would have understood what he meant. And of course, even as they thought of themselves disciples, they were the ones who were taught by Christ. To be taught by Christ is to receive his commandments. They shall be taught of God. I think one of the issues here I just want to stress again is the relationship. These are not principles. These aren't just laws. These aren't just statutes. These are commands. The living Christ commands His church. He gives us commandments. As the passage continues, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I said the verb tense was going to be important, and it is, but let's, let's go back a little bit further, because Jesus says, right after he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He then says, I will ask the Father, and the Father will give you another helper. In your English translation, you probably see helper capitalized as a title or a, a name. And indeed, one of the names of the Holy Spirit is the helper. It's a sweet identification of the Holy Spirit right in this place. And we don't have to wonder if it's the Holy Spirit because Jesus immediately says, you, you do know who this is. This is the Spirit of truth which the world cannot receive. Again, there's something here that we, we just almost passed right over. We, we have the helper identified here. He's going to accompany Christians. He's, he's, he's going to be the encourager to Christians, as we shall see. Much more on the Holy Spirit coming in this farewell discourse. But right now, just in this introductory promise about the coming of the Holy Spirit, 
It says that I will ask the Father, and the Father will give you the helper. Okay, so this is one of the great dividing points in the history of the Christian church right here. You know, we just, boom, just landed on it. 1054, schism. Eastern and Western Christianity. Over what? Well, over lots of things, actually. But the one theological issue that was more pressing than any other had to do with the Holy Spirit and uh, Trinitarian uh, truth. So, does the Holy Spirit proceed from the Father or from the Father and the Son? Just in the order of the intertrinitarian relation, does the Holy Spirit proceed merely from the Father or from the Father and the Son? This passage is rather crucial for that. Well, Eastern Christianity, orthodoxy as it is known, uh, the various Orthodox churches, basically now named by nationalities, the Greek Orthodox Church, the Syrian Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church, emphatically say that the Holy Spirit proceeds only from the Father, not from the Son. With equal emphatic emphasis, Western Christianity, of which we are a part, says that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son. And you just say, well, here it is, we're on a Sunday morning, on the Lord's Day, what difference does it make? Well, it's the difference of the understanding the intertrinitarian relationship, and of course, as we will always say, it's an intertrinitarian mystery. We have no human means of penetrating that ministry, that mystery, it's just nonetheless revealed to us, and what's revealed to us is gift and truth. And what is revealed to us is that the Holy Spirit obeys both the Son and the Father. So when we speak of the second person of the Trinity, we're talking about the Son. And in clear New Testament theology, from the very text of the New Testament, Jesus is the Son of the Father. He proceeded from the Father. He is the only begotten of the Father. He is the one who obeys the Father. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, obeys both the Son and the Father. And in this case, you say, well, the, if I'm looking here at John 14, the Holy Spirit appears, the word, the procession is not, is not here as a, as a word, but, uh, but it's the Father who's going to send the Spirit, but you'll notice the Father sends the Spirit at the request of the Son. So... There's a lot here. If, if all we had was this, this passage, it wouldn't be perhaps all that important. But in retrospect, once the issue is raised, we say, well, oh, there is a very interesting pattern here. Uh, the Holy Spirit is not identified as the one who Jesus just says, oh, by the way, uh, the Father's going to send the, the, the helper. He says, I will ask the Father. I will, I will ask the Father, and the Father will send the helper. Then notice what else it said, to be with you forever. It's a great promise. It's not a temporary uh, presence for the church. It's not a temporary promise. It's a, it's a forever promise. I will, send, I will ask the Father, and He will send you another helper to be with you forever. And that's in contrast to the fact that Christ is not going to be with them forever, which He's about to say in seconds. But the Holy Spirit never leaves. The Holy Spirit 
is not the second person of the Trinity, is not the Savior who will accomplish atonement, does not die on Calvary's cross, is not resurrected from the dead, does not ascend to the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son and is given to the church to believers forever. This is a tremendous promise. The Holy Spirit is not a coming and going thing. And that will correct a lot of our language right there. Where a lot of people said, well, the Holy Spirit came. Yeah, well, the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came within days of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and very shortly after His ascension to heaven, just as was promised. The Holy Spirit has never left. Now, the Holy Spirit may be more visible in, uh, in, in, in our Christian lives and are more prominent in our experience at some time, but the Holy Spirit never leaves us. And by the way, if the Holy Spirit ever left us, we'd be lost. And I don't mean just lost like aimless. I mean lost like severed from Christ. The Holy Spirit keeps us united to Christ. We better count on the fact He's given to us forever. But as you look at this, Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and He will send you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him or knows Him. Well, to be honest, if you're just thinking of this passage and the flow of Jesus' words to the disciples, this might not be something that... Let me put, let me put it this way. I, I was doing a thinking in public with a prominent author this past week. Just a wonderful hour-long conversation. Someone way outside our world, but uh, it is uh, Ilya Shapiro, uh, who's... Uh, and because of the Supreme Court hearings beginning tomorrow morning, we're actually going to release that program very fast. Uh, you, I didn't mean to speak of it in this way. I think you'll find it very interesting. But uh, uh, his new book on the supreme disorder, speaking of the court and the confirmation process, it's a, it's a big book. But he said, you know, he said it's a much better book because an editor cut out 40,000 words. You know, and this is where... Reminds me of Gore Vidal or someone famous author like that, you know, who got his manuscript back and saw all the words that had marked out, and he just cried out, "My babies, my babies!" Uh, you know, any author knows exactly what that feels like. You're taking my babies, my words. But that's what an editor does. An editor trims things down to where the action is faster, the flow is easier, the pace is more natural. In other words, not the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is not written in order that Simon and Schuster uh, may publish it and it be received to critical acclaim. Jesus, his, his speeches are not edited in such a way that uh, you say, well, okay, this, uh, this flow means it'd be better if Jesus says this, you know, two chapters later, let's just cut and paste, put it over here. No. You have here, is Jesus speaking to the disciples, and, and, and here's, here's what I'm talking about. He says, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. Because, it, I mean, this is a lot. This is a lot in one place, and as Jesus is actually going kind of somewhere else, there's just a lot here. Let's not rush. So what's interesting there is He says, the world cannot receive the Holy Spirit. 
fascinating. Just Do you not hear John 1 in this, the prologue to John's gospel? He came into his own, and his own received him not. But the next verse, but as many as received him, to them gave he power. Okay, so there were some who were given the ability to receive Christ. And they become known as Christians, by the way. They become known as Christians. This is, this is who we are. We are those who have been given the knowledge of Christ. And we all know that according to the New Testament, that is by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is not physically present with us now. But the Son asked the Father, and the Father sent the Holy Spirit who is with us forever. And it's the Holy Spirit who convicts of sin and righteousness. It's the, it's the Holy Spirit who illuminates the heart so that we may understand, first of all, Christ and see Him and love Him and open our eyes to understand the Scripture. And it's the Holy Spirit who inspired the Scripture. The Spirit of God moving on men of old to write exactly what God wanted written. But here, the Spirit of truth is identified whom the world cannot receive. So here's something, it's, it's really crucial, folks. So there's a parallel here that we need not to miss, and this, this will clear up some confusion in the contemporary church, okay? This will eliminate some nonsense instantly, okay? So is there a Christian who has not received Christ? Oh, no. <laughs> by definition, no. But by this same definition, is there a Christian who has not received the Holy Spirit? No. Clarifies instantly a tremendous and dangerous nonsense. The world's not divided. Let's put it this way. The Christian church is not divided between those who have received Christ and those who have not. The Christian church is only made up of those who have received Christ. And yet to have received Christ is to have received the Holy Spirit. And then notice the language. It's very interesting that, that Jesus uses just as he continues here. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. Again, speaking of the Holy Spirit exactly the way the prologue of the Gospel of John spoke about himself. And then the next words, he says, You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Well, I mentioned verb tense twice. Here it is. Okay, so just follow this. This is Jesus in the farewell discourse teaching the disciples as he is on his way uh, to the cross. And uh, they're now, all these events are now quickening. Remember, he's already sent Judas away from the table. And what you must do, do quickly. So, I mean, these said Judas Iscariot, as we shall see. And this is, uh, so everything's quickening. This is all a matter of, uh, of a pace that is coming very quickly, even as this material in the farewell discourse is so thick, rich gift to us. We, we don't want to rush too quickly, but notice here, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So there's a present tense and a future tense. The present tense is he dwells with you, with you, the preposition. So there's a tense and a preposition. Let's just think of it that way, Okay. So there's a tense, there are two tenses, two prepositions. Tense one, he 
is with you. You know him because he is with you. It tends to, he will be in you. Wow. The in you is an explosive, entirely new thing. And it's a future thing. Now, it's, it's not future for us because we are, we are those after the resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ who come after the gift of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. But the Holy Spirit didn't just come to be among the disciples. He was already among the disciples. He came to be in them. This is the indwelling spirit. And it comes back to the fact that Jesus didn't say, some of you are going to have an experience after conversion at some point in which you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. You're going to have the indwelling Holy Spirit. No, he says, will. It's, it's, it's of all believers. It's, a, it's not a conditional promise. It's an unconditional promise. He is with you now, he says to the disciples. And, uh, and then in the future tense, he will be in you. This indwelling Christ is the indwelling Holy Spirit also in the same promise. Jesus here says to his disciples, if, uh, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So much more there. And, and, and then he says, uh, I'm going to make that obedience possible. Don't miss this. I'm going to make that obedience possible by a helper. So this ties this all together for us in a way that's very helpful. We actually can't keep Christ's commandments in and of ourselves of our own power. Just try the love one another command. But the helper is not just here as a helper. Otherwise, it looks like a discontinuous flow, doesn't it? You need to bring in that editor from Simon & Schuster to say, level this out. Put the Holy Spirit part over where the Holy Spirit part belongs. No, the Holy Spirit part belongs right here because we cannot know Christ without the Holy Spirit. We cannot love Christ without the Holy Spirit. We cannot obey Christ without the Holy Spirit. But we have a helper because the Son has asked the Father, and the Father has sent the Helper, even the Spirit of Truth. This is the one the world cannot receive. But we know Him. Because, as the disciples are told, He dwells with you and He will dwell in you. And He dwells with us and He does dwell in us. 